Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. Today, who is George Soros and why, given his astonishing philanthropy, do so many people seem to hate him? What is it about this Hungarian-born American, one of the world's richest men, a man estimated to have given away $32 billion of his fortune, that sets off so many people, particularly on the American right? He's been described as a globalist billionaire, one of the more polite invocations of barely concealed anti-Semitism directed towards Soros. Reading some accounts, you might think he's a villain of James Bond proportions. So what are the facts behind the fiction? Why has he given away so much money and to whom and what will be his legacy? I'm joined by Daniel Bessner, Associate Professor in International Studies at the University of Washington and someone who has studied and written about George Soros' career and the hatred that he incurs. Hello, Daniel. And how are you and where are you? I'm good. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm in unsunny Los Angeles today where it is overcast, but otherwise I'm pretty good. Let's pick up with George Soros because he is absolutely fascinating. I mean, we know that he was born Georgi Swartz in Hungary in 1930, so he's into his 90s. It was a non-observant Jewish family. But what else do we know about his background? He basically survived the Holocaust. After the war, he migrated eventually from communist Hungary to Great Britain, where he became a financier over a period of years. He also eventually moved to the US. And most famously, he shorted the pound, which was one of his first big transactions, um, made an incredible amount of money from that. And really, from the early-ish 1980s, late 1970s, early 1980s, has emerged as a major philanthropist, first in funding Samizdat and things like that in Soviet-influenced Eastern Europe, and then over the last 30 years has been involved in, in a diversity of philanthropic issues that could broadly be associated with what is in the United States, a, a sort of left liberal position, which is regulated markets, um, freedom of speech, political freedoms, civil liberties. And he he's taken some more daring, at least in terms, again, of the United States, political positions with regards to prison reform, reform of narcotics laws. And uh, he actually funds a think tank uh, called the Quincy Institute, which promotes basically a non-interventionist U.S. foreign policy. So he's been involved in a lot of different issue areas, and particularly the last 10 or so years has become a bugaboo of the American, not only far right, but American right itself. 
It's a fascinating biography. Can we roll back a little bit to his intellectual influences? Because you said he was the man who broke the Bank of England was the, the, the newspaper headline. But he studied in London under Karl Popper. Popper is a fascinating uh, guy, you know, and there are quite a few similarities in their background, aren't there, in terms of uh, Jewish family, but in Popper's case, he became a Lutheran. Maybe you could say a bit about that and the, the kind of intellectual background to Soros. Absolutely. My uh, advisor in graduate school wrote the literal book on Popper, so I know quite a bit about him. So uh, Karl Popper was a Viennese I think it's fair to call him a Viennese Jew. I believe his parents converted, but you know, raised in a very Jewish milieu, uh, understood himself to some degree to be Jewish. You, you know, had some thoughts about Israel and, and Jewish assimilation. But Popper started his career as actually a philosopher of science, responding to various intellectual debates about the the nature of science and epistemology, which just means how we know what we know in the 1920s and 1930s Viennese context, but is perhaps most famous today for his 1945 book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, which articulated a philosophy that was very influential on Soros called, broadly speaking, cosmopolitanism. So in effect, what I think Popper was trying to do was he articulated a political position whereby people would all sort of amalgamate and assimilate into a cosmopolitan society that was premised on his idealized vision of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, particularly interwar Vienna, where a bunch of different populations, Jews and whatnot, came together to live in harmony. And, and Popper essentially articulated this vision after World War II in this book. He, he was very anti-nationalist. He was very anti-Zionist. And this was a philosophy, the cosmopolitan philosophy, that was very influential on Soros. Um, from my understanding of Soros's biography, he was not especially close to Popper, but he did study under him when Popper was at the London School of Economics. But this is really influential on, on Popper, this notion of the open society. And he named his philanthropy the Open Society Foundation or foundations it changes over time. And he really believed in this cosmopolitan philosophy. And, and I just want to say, I think it's important to identify this was a, a strategy by which Jews like Popper wanted to assimilate and acculturate into larger society. And I think Soros has always been someone very aware of his Jewish identity uh, and very aware of, obviously, he is a survivor of the Holocaust, of the, the sort of um, problems that the Jews have faced in the 20th century. So one of his major goals is, I think, to pr promote the sort of multicultural, colorblind-esque philosophy that Popper articulated um, earlier in the century. And, and as you mentioned, the, the, the famous cop, uh, Popper work is the open society and its enemies. And that's really, I suppose, what we're still going to be talking about today. The whole notion of this, it seems to me anyway, a fundamentally optimistic view of the world that can be changed by good people putting quite a lot of money into into thinking into a university in 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 uh, in in Hungary and also in taking on some of the obvious enemies of the open society i mean this is one of the things that that i find absolutely fascinating about about soros himself that in the 70s when communism was in decline he really supported solidarity in Poland, Charter 77 and Czechoslovakia and so on. It was quite an extraordinary thing for an individual to do in those times. 
yes, a very rich individual. And I think that that gets to an irony at the heart of Soros's career that, that we could talk about later. But he very much promoted these freedom movements in the Eastern Bloc. Um, and this, he, he very much was one of the earliest modern instantiations of what you see throughout uh, the former Soviet space or so- Soviet influence space about the West coming in and trying to shape politics. And, and you know, frankly, they're absolutely right that that's precisely what Soros was trying to do. And he was part, of course, of a larger effort, both connected to the American and British states and other states as well and other NGOs. But but Soros, is, you know, he's kind of a cult of personality guy. He likes to repeat in his books, if I recall correctly, like he's got an incredible ego. So he very much put himself at the front of all of these efforts. He liked the attention. This is, I think, part of the reason that he became or has become rather such a lightning rod in the culture. And it's, uh, well, as you suggest, it's why he's made so many enemies. Can we take one specific example? In 2012, uh, Fidesz, the political party in Hungary, named Soros as an enemy of the state which is, goes back to, you know, the enemy of the people, the phrase that Hitler used, the phrase that Stalin and Stalinists used. It was very interesting that this as late as 2012, this could be said, whereas Soros said, well, you know, Hungary itself has become a mafia state. There's no love lost with, between his ancestral home and uh, George Soros today, is there? No, absolutely not. And and there's a bunch of ironies there. You know, Orban was initially associated with, I believe, Soros-funded charities in the early 1990s, and he was related to this anti-communist movement, and then, you know, recently has very much turned against Soros. And, and there's a lot of, from what I saw, vicious anti-Semitic propaganda, uh, you know, barely coded anti-Semitic propaganda against Soros throughout Hungary. So th- there absolutely is no love lost. And uh, of course, Soros had this dream related to Popper, which was to reform or re-articulate the Austro-Hungarian Empire in some sense, its cosmopolitan space in middle Europa, which was a big, you know, phrase after the end of the Cold War. And that has kind of just broken on the shores of reality. And and I, I think it, this might be a useful way to just state my thesis. I think the ultimate tragedy of Soros's life is that capitalism has allowed him to become as wealthy as he has. And, and it's capitalism that has provided him with the resources to try to reform political society. But it's precisely the degradations of capitalism that prevent the world that Soros wants to see from coming into being. So there's an ultimate tragedy and irony at the center of this guy's life who used all this money to try to reform a political society. But a political society that I think is unable to be reformed, given the realities of late stage neoliberal capitalism. I think capitalism is not in its late stage, but neoliberalism probably is. Right. Now, there's a lot to unpick there. Seen from the outside, I'm no expert on Hungary, but seen from the outside, Hungary is a classic East European state that has gone bad and has gone for a strong leader. And whether to call it capitalist or otherwise seems beside the point to those on the outside. Am I wrong there? It's funny. I would kind of turn that on its head. I mean, the interesting thing about our current era, in my opinion, at least, is that uh, Fukuyama, Francis Fukuyama's thesis was essentially correct, is that we're kind of all capitalists now. We're not liberals like Fukuyama predicted, but we're all capitalists. You know, China's an authoritarian capitalist state. Russia's kleptocratic capitalist. Hungary, I'm not as familiar, but let's just say Soros is right for the moment. It's a type of mafia capitalist state. The US and UK are liberal capitalists. So what really matters here, the sort of surface level 
politics or the deeper structure that really shapes things. And that's the economic distribution of uh, resources in society. So so I would actually turn what you said on its head. It's that um, Eastern Europe actually shares quite a lot now with the United States and the UK, not in its surface politics, um, even though, of course, um, you guys got <laughs> Boris and we got Donald, but in its deeper structure, which is that these are all capitalist states. They function quite similarly. You know, here in this country, Country, we're basically run by an oligarchy that is reproducing itself. I don't know if the term Nepo baby has reached the UK, but we've got quite a lot of Nepo babies here. So I would actually say their deeper structures are rather similar. And so you could make Soros wanted to attack the politics of it effectively. But that didn't change what was really going on in these societies. And you see in the 1990s with the, the US and Western capital writ large, flooding into former Soviet spaces, flooding into Russia, really, really contributing to the economic degradation of those spaces, which I think is the major reason there is this gigantic anti-Western pushback, but also to only to a certain degree, you know, Hungary still in NATO and all those other things. Let me pick up on the point specifically about America now. Where do those on the American right have the biggest grudge against Soros because the things that he did in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the changes that came about, however now imperfect, in Eastern Europe, were something you would have thought that he would become, have been at least, a hero of the American right for a time. So where, when did that switch and how did it switch? Well, anti-communism is not really a political force now in American life and hasn't been for a generation. So the, the association of Soros, the anti-communist with the right, just doesn't fly politically. It's just not an, a part of the discourse. Um, and I really think it's been in the last 10 or so years when you see this reaction to neoliberal capitalism. And unsurprisingly and predictably, it is in certain spaces that backlash has assumed anti-Semitic forms. I mean, it doesn't always have to assume anti-Semitic forms. Think about Bernie Sanders, who's very much Jewish, who's very much anti-neoliberal. But the, the right-wing instantiation of it have, has, has assumed an anti-Semitic form due to various deeper currents in American history. And Soros, again, someone who's out there, someone who likes talking, someone who likes the attention, has predictably become sort of the face of this quote-unquote globalist perspective that someone like Steve Bannon made his career um, criticizing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
presumably, I mean, what do we know about Soros himself now and how he views all this? I mean, he must be obviously very disappointed with Donald Trump and other things. He must be pretty disappointed with the reception that he gets from Fidesz and others in Hungary. So where does he stand now? Does he, a man in his 90s, do you think he looks back on his life and his legacy and think, I wasted a lot of money on this? <laughs> I mean, as you said, he is a man in his 90s. So what does he really think? I don't know. That is a, a very advanced age. But I, I think if I were to put myself in Soros's shoes, my guess is that he doesn't have that many regrets because someone like that doesn't achieve the position they do by living their life filled with regrets. I think that he he thought he would think that he he did the best that he he has done. My understanding is that now some of his children are taking over his philanthropies. And also my limited understanding is that they're kind of pursuing the same things he did. So I guess he would say, you know, at least he tried. <laughs> yeah, at least at least he tried. Where, where then does he fit into this? I mean, those of us outside the United States are vaguely familiar with some of the well, Theodore Roosevelt might have called the malefactors of great wealth, who uh, you, can name, you can name a few, I'm, I'm sure. But some of those people who have endorsed right-wing causes for at least a generation and probably a lot longer than that, certainly going back to, to, to Ronald Reagan. So where do they stand now in terms of their influence in American public life, do you think? It's interesting because in some sense, they obviously have outsized influence because they have money and this is a system run by money. And if you're able to pay people to lobby, you're able to have more influence. But in some some degree, I actually think that we live in an era very different from the era of the robber barons, which was an early era in capitalist development. I think one of the reasons that so many of our contemporary oligarchs like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk are, are investing so much in space travel is because they have a sense, perhaps only subconsciously that they can't direct the system like someone like a John Rockefeller or an Andrew Carnegie was able to, that the system has kind of gotten outside of itself, which is precisely what Marx predicted in the middle of the 19th century, that if human beings don't control capitalism, capitalism will control them. And I think we're actually in the moment where capitalism does control people. People work at bullshit jobs, to borrow David Graeber's famous phrasing, people are miserable, people, you know, consume empty calories and consume cheap entertainment, uh, and they're not exactly living fulfilled lives as they stare at their screens. So I think to some degree, the way that I like putting it colloquially is that Skynet has become self-aware, that the algorithm now determines things more than human beings determine the algorithm. So that's what I, I would say in regards to billionaires, that that they do influence things, obviously, but also I don't think they influence quite the things to the degree that they, they did. I mean, and, you know, you guys just had a bunch of Brits put on succession. Uh, and, and that whole show is about how miserable the super wealthy is because they're alienated from the system. And I think that's probably pretty accurate. In terms of Soros himself, I just wondered if some of his causes were simply not those that would resonate easily with Americans. I'm thinking of essentially American exceptionalism. I mean, if you believe in some of the Karl Popper ideas, if you believe in the cooperation also between nations and people of goodwill, when you have a United States, which is, and it's not just Trump, has been often lukewarm or worse about global institutions, about the International Criminal Court, about the United Nations and so on. You are really, in, in the case of Soros, rowing very hard against a very difficult tide. 
Yeah, the United States is an imperial hegemon, and it acts like it. It's been a brutal force since World War II, since the United States for, formally took over from the British as the imperial hegemon, even though that started, I would say, uh, by the teens and certainly by the 20s. But yeah, it's an imperial hegemon, and like an imperial hegemon, it's going to act as it wants in the world. And that is not in line with Soros's philosophy. But again, the detention of Soros's philosophy is, you know, Karl Popper wasn't an capitalist. He, he wasn't accruing an incredible amount of money. So there's always been that tension in, in Soros's life. I mean, Popper would have assumed that was a life wasted, to spend all of your time getting money. Where is the hope then in your analysis, given you know we have had someone who would be a benefactor of enormous wealth, not a malefactor of enormous wealth, at least that's how he presents himself, putting all these money in good causes, the Central European University and so on, which has had to move out of Hungary to Vienna, the other causes that you've talked about. I mean, where then is the hope for some kind of change in American politics? There's no hope. There's there's no hope. I mean, basically, what I really think, I mean, this is, I'm a historian, so I like thinking in large terms. I, I think basically hope was lost once the working classes of Europe decided to fight each other in World War I. <laughs> once, once that happened, that was basically the end of any, uh, of any hope of human beings controlling capitalism. Because it was an early enough stage in capitalist development when if the most advanced industrial c- countries were able to come together and actually control the economy, maybe you could have had a different world be created. But I, I just think the last century has seen the slow decline of socialist approaches, the um, incredible triumph of capitalism now in its most degraded neoliberal form. And I, I just don't see a, a clear path to actually controlling it. Marx had a famous line, I believe, in the manifesto that said, if you don't control capitalism, I'm paraphrasing, if you don't control capitalism, we're going to lead to the mutual ruin of the contending classes. I think we're in the mutual ruin. And I think there's very, very, very little hope. Let's talk a bit just in the last couple of minutes about the Soros legacy then. I mean, what does he leave behind? The Central European University, for example, is that something that still exists that changes things in some way? I mean, I, I think Soros's biggest legacy is he's a, a big creator of this so-called nonprofit industrial complex, which is where revolutionary ideas go to die. Again, you can't have capitalism in the world that Soros wants. This is the fundamental tension of his life. And that is his ultimate legacy, is demonstrating that. The world he wants is not possible in the economic system that made him. But the, those those changes that he has made even though they're not going to change the capitalist system and uh, maybe have run into difficulties in Europe. There must be something of worth that is coming out of this, isn't there? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's always uh, glimmers in the darkness. Uh, but I mean, the level that is most interesting to me, which is a level of structure, has not been affected at all. So yeah, you might get Central European University, um, you might get some reforms in certain issue areas, and that's that's good. Sure, we probably could have gotten those things better in a, in a more social democratic way and probably more long lasting. But ultimately, I, I don't think his, he achieves what he wants. And I don't think it was possible from the beginning. I think it was a doomed project. We've enjoyed our conversation. Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And just a final word, the bunker is free to download, but if you like what you're hearing and want to make sure there's more where this came from, then you can back us on Patreon for as little as three pounds and help us to keep bringing you the podcast. It's been my pleasure. I'm Gavin Esler. Goodbye. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Banker Daily was written and presented by Gavin Esler. The producer was Chris Jones, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Uh-huh.